under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to be. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. This is Joey speaking. I'm flying solo this evening. And I thought I'd take the occasion of being up here by myself to stretch my legs a little bit. And given tonight, the 26th of June, 2019, the presidential election season really gets going with the first debate among the Democrats to see who will be the Democrats' nominee against Donald Trump in the 2020 general election. I thought it would be appropriate to revisit something I've mentioned on air before, something I realized during the 2016 election cycle, but which bears repeating. Number one, whenever presidential politics really get going, I mean, they're always going on. It's not just Trump derangement syndrome. It's not just Obama derangement syndrome. It's also, well, it's derangement over the office itself. Presidential derangement syndrome. PDS. But it's especially heightened, PDS is, when we're in the middle of campaign season and an election is forthcoming. No, I noticed during 2016, but I think this quote in particular started making the rounds during W's tenure. A lot of people sharing a famous quote from one of my favorite writers, H.L. Mencken. And the quote goes as follows. As democracy is perfected, the office represents more and more closely the inner soul of the people. We move toward a lofty ideal. On some great and glorious day, the plain folk of the land will reach their heart's desire at last. And the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. Now, I'm happy to see people sharing Minkin's quote here. Anytime people are exposed to Minkin's invective and his essentially insult comedy political writings from the 1920s in this case, essentially a century ago, I'm happy to see that people are well learning about this great writer. He wasn't a perfect man. In some ways he was fatally flawed, which I think keeps him from being having a continuing legacy in the American canon of literature. But I also worry a lot of people are sharing this downright moron quote and not quite getting the point. And something I worry about in general, that too often 
we're throwing all our insults, all our frustrations, all this crap at the people running for office and who are actually in office. The question is, how do they get there in the first place? So my fear is that people sharing this downright moron quote are wading in the shallow end of the pool. So let's baptize them, and all of you listening, if you'll stay with me here, let's baptize us all in the depths of Minkin's political cynicism. And forgive me if you've already heard this, if you've already read your Minkin, if you've already been christened in these cynical waters. And if so, and if you want to stick with me, bravo, encore! I suppose it won't hurt to be christened again. I try to do so weekly. One can never be too certain about uh, one's intellectual soul. So the modern use of Minkin's moron quote almost always seems to focus on the hilarious punchline. And it is funny. The downright moron label applying to a particular president or candidate running for the presidency. Without paying much attention to the setup of the downright moron punchline. Not only is a potential president being called idiotic, so too is the whole democratic ideal itself. According to Minken, mass democracy and the culture it produces marches us towards conformity, folly, and stupidity. So the question remains, why, as democracy is perfected, does the inner soul of the people reflect morandum? And, you know, if you think Minkin's going a little too far, he's being too hyperbolic, too mean, too cynical, just watch the news. Watch the debates tonight. Tell me it's not full of conformity, folly, and stupidity. We really have become... Very close to that movie, Idiocracy. We're not quite there, but we're getting there. Just watch the news. I think the evidence bears out this argument. Minken provides a full answer to this question, though. Why is it that the inner soul of the people, as democracy is perfected, reflects morandum? Well, he answered it in a 1920 essay, which the moron quote is from. A hundred years ago, he was writing about the presidential election between Warren Harding and James Cox. And he might as well have been describing Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump from 16, or whatever Democrat gets it, and Donald Trump again in 2020. He writes, neither candidate reveals the slightest dignity of conviction. Neither cares a hoot for any discernible principle. Neither, in any intelligent sense, is a man of honor. However, Minkin then takes a turn. This is the point I think so many people miss. He shifts his focus away from the gladiators doing battle in the arena and turns his gaze onto the bloodthirsty spectators watching the politics, rooting for certain candidates. He reminds us That democracy is not about the propagation of diverse and sound ideas, but winning votes at all costs. And how does one win votes? To quote Minken, of the two candidates, 
that one wins who least arouses the suspicions and distrust of the great masses of simple men. Well, what are more likely to arouse those suspicions and distrust than ideas, convictions, principles? The plain people are not hostile to shysterism or con men, save it be gross and unsuccessful, but they shy instantly and inevitably from the man who comes before them with notions they cannot immediately translate into terms of their everyday delusions. They fear the novel idea, and particularly the revolutionary idea, as they fear the devil. Minkin goes on to venture that this fear of ideas is, quote, peculiarly peculiarly democratic. It's a democratic phenomenon, which has been perfected in America, a country who has developed a doctrine of right thinking and a singular passion for conformity and a dread of novelty and originality in almost every aspect of life. If one is not in agreement with the right thinking of the time, then one is immediately suspect. Any novel idea in any field of human relations carries with it a burden of obnoxiousness and is instantly challenged as mysteriously immoral by the great masses of right-thinking men. I guess, folks, you can consider what Minkin's criticizing here, and he saw it a hundred years ago. It's still going on today. He's criticizing political correctness. If you don't have the correct opinions, if you don't use the right words even, even, you're considered immoral and suspect. It goes on today, and it went on a hundred years ago. Minkin continues. He writes, such tests arise inevitably out of democracy. The domination of unreflective men moved in vast herds by mob emotions. In private life, no man of any sense would think of applying them. We do not estimate the integrity and ability of an acquaintance by his flabby willingness to accept our ideas. We estimate him by the honesty and effectiveness with which he maintains his own ideas. That's what I look for, at least, folks. Somebody who has their own independent mind. You know, I do like to be around people that I can be on the same page with without always getting into a fight over basic worldview or values. But I don't like people that are just pushovers. Maybe they show a little deference. They'll hear me out. But I also want to hear what they think, not just how much they agree with me. All of us, Minkin continues, if we are of reflective habit, like and admire men whose fundamentally beliefs differ radically from our own. But when a candidate for public office faces the voters, he does not face men of sense. He faces a mob of men whose chief distinguishing mark is the fact that they are quite incapable of weighing ideas or even of comprehending any save the most elemental. Men whose whole thinking is done in terms of emotion and whose dominant emotion is dread of what they cannot understand. So confronted, the candidate must either bark with the pack or count himself lost. Now, again, you might think I'm exaggerating. I'm being mean to all the wonderful people here in America. That Minkins being too cynical, too elitist, blah, 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 blah. But thinking in terms of emotion. That image that came out today of the father and the daughter drowned in the Rio Grande broke my heart. Because I just think of it in human terms. I think of a father with his young daughter and his wife so desperate to get here and to make a better life that they died doing so. 
But my first thought wasn't, you feel that. You feel that emotion. You feel that heartbreak. You see that tragedy, and you put yourself in that person's shoes. And you realize you can't even fathom what would drive a man to do that. Because your life has been so good. But I did not immediately think, this is Donald Trump's fault. In the same way, if I'm a victim of a crime here in Montgomery, I don't immediately think this is the police chief's fault. This is the mayor's fault. It's just not how I think. Life in the world is too complicated, and we give our politicians too much blame. Now, they're willing to take too much credit, so I guess they deserve too much blame at times. But I don't take these emotional stories... And you can find a lot of them and say, this is how we need to make policy in this country. Because you told me a great emotional story, then I need to give you boatloads of power. It's not how I think. But it is how our politics works. And it's done by both sides. They have different styles. They pull on your heartstrings in different ways. But that is how politics works. This is why you get these ads, these political ads, where people are so wooden that they barely seem human at all. But they're just human enough or to make sure I believe the same thing as you and I'll carry out your ideas. The point is, it's very tough to actually represent thousands if not millions of people and do so without coming across as a bit fake, contrived and hypocrite we expect too much of these folks and they certainly expect too much of themselves but I want to kind of boil down what H.O. Mencken was getting at in his essay we can now craft a simple formula for why the White House will one day be adorned by a downright moron, if it hasn't already in the last hundred years. Number one, democracy offers power to the people, to the masses. With this power on offer, the masses come to care more about winning that power than the free expression of ideas. With winning as the goal, all novel ideas take a backseat to conformity, virtue signaling, and emotional appeals. With the rules of the mob now set as such, only the most empty-headed or hucksterous, hypocritical politicians rise to the top. And finally, as this process is perfected and the democratic populace expanded, fewer and fewer ideas will matter until we have reached the land of Mirandum with the president as our idiot idol. So the next time you wish to quote Minken to call Trump or Clinton or Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden or whomever you want to pick a moron, feel free. But I hope you understand it is the American people's common love of their mass democracy and their power of the people that has brought us to this great and glorious day of idiocy. Our presidents act like morons in public because they see the people acting like morons And so they have to represent us. 
Folks, what we hold in common these days, I wish it was life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But what we seem to hold in common these days, our hollow love of the democratic power. We only really love it when our side wins, though, right? Our demand for conformity and ideas and our mere signaling of virtues on social media or elsewhere, rather than embodying and living out our virtues, it's not only transforming us into divided rivals and different party factions and tribes, but it's, at the end of the day, and I felt the effect on me, it's turning us into nincompoops at large. Here's the deal. Exalt any person or idea too much, say a given president or democracy itself. Democracy dies in darkness. The Washington Post won't let you forget, folks. But exalt any person or idea too much, and you will probably lose your critical faculties along with the rest of the fan club you joined. Our politics, it seems, only brings us together as a collection of morons and lick spittles. Nonetheless, I suspect this nincompoopery, this idiocy that we all seem to display when we talk politics, and I want to be clear, I've met all sorts of brilliant people, brilliant people, who are successful in their careers, they're good family men and women, they give back to the community, They've done the right things in life. They really do embody good values, good virtues. They've put them to work in their lives and help change their own lives and others' lives in the process. But all these amazing, hardworking, brilliant people, when they are brought to bear in front of the idol of democracy and government power, these brilliant, virtuous people seem to just become idiotic. I'm willing to advocate all sorts of immoral things. It's a weird thing that, well, power corrupts. But I suspect all this idiocy, all this nincompoopery is not unique to democracy. It's probably heightened by the process, but it's not unique to that. There have been idiots throughout time, no doubt. And put any person or pedestal person or idea on a pedestal, especially in a democratic society, expected to atrophy one's mind while creating enemies even out of good friends and family members. Hell, I mean, there are people I agree with, politically speaking, ideologically speaking, like exalt liberty too much. You're a hardcore libertarian. I've met a lot of people that put liberty on a pedestal a little too much, and they come across as just downright dumb or at least lacking a sense of humor. Here's the thing, folks, in the shallows of politics, and that's what presidential elections bring out in us, the shallows. Imbeciles are always and everywhere. Nitwits are pervasive no matter the school of thought. They've been with us time immemorial. Get used to it. Scream it at the top of your lungs. I'm surrounded by idiots. But here's the thing. These people are our neighbors, our family members, and our friends. And you never know. An ignoramus may stare back at you in the mirror this very morning. In fact, I stared into my mirror this morning, and I could hardly stop myself from saying, I have seen the boob, and he is me. 
No, I would love to have a president that believes in liberty that says, be your own kind of idiot in your own kind of way. I would love to see power devolved away from Washington, D.C., given back to the states, given back to the cities, given back to individual people to arrange their lives as they wish. I would love to see all these things. I think it would help the division in the country if Alabama could be like Alabama and California could be like California. Texas could be Texas and New York could be New York. We're different types of cultures. I mean, it's estimated we have five, six different types of nations within this one nation we call the United States. But let's not kid ourselves. Anyway, we go. We're just going to be dumb about it. But I'd rather a big group of idiots, a mob of dunderheads, didn't have as much power. A mob of dunderheads without power is much better than a mob of dunderheads with a lot of power. My point is essentially this. We have to be suspect of even our best intentions. And especially suspect of this circus, this show, that will begin tonight with the first 10 Democrats debating. And I use that word debate and debating loosely. It's more a weird reality show where they try to throw zingers and sound bites at one another. We should be very suspect of it. We should ask ourselves, is this actually us living up to what our ancestors intended? Is this actually us living up to the best ideas we can muster? Or is this us kind of giving in to where life's taken us, where history has taken us? And we do the best we can, I suppose. But is it even the best we can, given our limitations and given where we are in history in this moment? I don't think it is. So I'm going to sit back. I'm going to watch the freak show in the circus. I'm going to try to enjoy myself. But there's a reason people like calling the president any president, a moron. It's because we know it's to a certain degree true that no matter how smart somebody is, whether it's a Rhodes Scholar like Bill Clinton or somebody incredibly daft like Warren Harding or somebody so inconsequential they're comparing themselves to Millard Fillmore, they're people too. And I think that's actually part of the current president, Donald Trump's appeal. That he doesn't, he says stuff, but I don't think he pretends to be this brilliant, erudite scholar. He's a man of action. I don't always agree with that action, but at least he seems like, oh, it's the old George Carlin joke about Bill Clinton. That Bill Clinton's full of crap. Well, but at least he's honest about it. I think Donald Trump has hit that note perfectly. We'll see where this goes. We'll see how we solve some of the complex problems the nation faces and we all face in our lives. Immigration and the border is truly a problem. I think about that father who risked his life and lost his life alongside his daughter. What drives a person to do that? And again, I don't know if I could even fathom the sort of depravity 
and squalor that you have to live in in certain countries to make you take these risks, to make you take that journey. There has to be some sort of solution to these issues. One that is, yes, humane, that lives up to our best traditions, that respects the basic dignity and liberty of every person made in the image and likeness of God. In my opinion, it doesn't mean you get a bunch of free stuff. But there's got to be a way to help solve these issues. As well as many, many more. But I don't expect any sort of brilliant insights or rhetoric this evening as the first 10 Democrats have their turn at bat. I expect more emotional appeals. I expect all sorts of demonization of Donald Trump, and they'll probably demonize him for demonizing other people. Just how it goes. But let's have some fun as this election starts. Let's just enjoy ourselves. And when things get really serious, well, we'll know what to do. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'll be right back. Listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour, brought to you in part by Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. Now, Eddie Bader has been blowing and going with the real estate market, helping all sorts of folks buy or sell their homes. He can really help you out, especially if you're a first time home buyer, help you through all the different steps. It's a little more complicated than you might expect, but it's also, well, the market is open. For a lot of people who think they're stuck renting, let Eddie Bader show you all the options out there in the River Region. Maybe you've hit it big early in life. Maybe you're looking to retire and you want that great lakeside property. Eddie Bader can help you out, give you lakeside tours. He really knows what he's doing when it comes to the real estate market, and you can give him a call. Save this in your phone. If you're looking for a real estate agent, maybe not even today, but tomorrow, you're going to thank me for having this number in your phone 
322-0662. That is the number for Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group. And Eddie wanted me to tell you more about the Goodson Group. In particular, one thing they're doing right now, you can still sign up for classes at Bo Goodson School of Real Estate. They meet every Thursday in a very active class taught by Bo Goodson himself. Bo has over 40 years of experience in the real estate market and continues to be an active broker and realtor. So he uses these real-life experience from yesterday or 30 years ago, these real-life experiences as examples. So you don't have to open up some stupid, dusty, expensive textbook. You can actually just listen to Bo, learn from his experience, and he'll walk you through a lot of the aspects of real estate. And even if you're only thinking about buying a home, not thinking about becoming a realtor yourself, it's a great educational class, so you really know the ropes. So give Bo Goodson a call if you're looking to be part of Bo Goodson School of Real Estate, 551-0225. Again, that number, 551-0225. Thank you to Eddie Bader. Thank you to the Goodson Group. Thank you, Bo. Thank you for sponsoring the show. Now, I want to move to something that I, I find fascinating, and you can do this with a lot of different types of products and services, especially when I hear people complaining. And there's plenty to complain about. Life is suffering, don't you know? But we're living in the best time ever, ever in human history, in so many ways. And you could go into some long-winded, systematic explanation for why we're so prosperous and rich and blah, 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 blah. And I love doing that, but not tonight. So I don't want to focus in on one product I'm sure some of you have been craving as the heat and humidity has crept over the river region. Of course, I'm talking about ice cream. It's so freaking good. I love ice cream. My dad, when I was down at the beach, had these like Snickers ice cream bars in the freezer. Oh, Lord, I think I ate like three or four in one sitting. Oh, sorry, Dad. Sorry to steal your Snickers ice cream. But ice cream in all its different forms and flavors. It's a great day here at the radio station when the Bluebell rep Kenny comes by with a new Bluebell flavor. There's just something about ice cream, whether it's you know loaded with chocolate and peanut butter and mint or you know nuts or whatever it is, and it's like all oh, that sugar in it that's so good. But even now, you can get some Halo Top if you're on a diet, and it's smooth and icy and delicious, like a peanut butter cup ice cream. It's ice cream. I don't need to sell ice cream to you, especially with all this summer heat. But it's fun at times to think about how ice cream is so everywhere. You got the ice cream man with the music coming around. I actually heard some of that when I was in upstate New York. He was coming around the block all the time. You hear the little you know, jingle going off, and oh, it's time to go buy some ice cream. I remember it finally here in Montgomery, running up to the ice cream man and, you know, Buying like a rocket popsicle or something or a Flintstones popsicle or something. Great stuff. I mean, you can buy it at the grocery store, you can buy it at gas stations, ballparks, it's everywhere. But if you think about it, like 350 years ago, I believe that was ice cream was invented. It was a rare delicacy reserved for kings and the riches of aristocrats. And to enjoy ice cream, a person had to be able to afford refrigeration back then, which is in the pre-industrial world was arduous and expensive. Back then, 
to refrigerate foodstuffs. People needed the land to build an ice house to store the ice, fresh water access, and servants to cut and haul the ice. The ice would have to be regularly restocked and was available only in some climates at some times. But thanks to technology and scientific progress, ice cream has become, well, pretty much available to everybody. Even, you know, the poorest of the poor. Now, the first recorded mention of ice cream on the, is on the menu of a feast in 1671 by King Charles II. The banquet was held to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Charles' ascendancy to the British throne. The flavor remains unknown, but the dessert was exclusive to the king's table and served with one plate of white strawberries. And I guess the point is this, and I'm going to continue with ice cream, is that we live better than the most powerful people even, I think, 100 years ago. Like, I wouldn't trade places with Andrew Carnegie or Rockefeller or any of those guys. We live better today, even on modest salaries, because of the advancement of the market. Yes, nominal wages for the everyday American worker are down. But what that everyday American worker, even with nominal wages, lower because of monetary policy and inflation and ridiculous taxation and offshoring of jobs and blah, 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 blah. Even with the wages a little bit down, the American worker can live better than most kings or queens or emperors of old. How do you like them apples, Charles? But the new treat quickly took off back then. In the late 1600s, eating ice cream not only demonstrated very high social status, but flavors themselves were a means to show off. From cucumber to carnation, sherry to daffodil, even though daffodil is poisonous, the more outlandish the flavor, the more it was valued by aristocrats. Fast forward 150 years to the 1850s, and ice cream had become available to the masses, albeit in a very different way than we know today. Italian immigrants who came to the United, King- came to the United Kingdom to escape the Napoleonic Wars in mainland Europe, as well as poor economic conditions, created what they called the penny lick. Street vendors would sell a small glass of ice cream for a penny to crowds of joyous customers. This lighthearted contraption ended up having deadly consequences, though. The penny lick was banned in 1898 after it was directly linked with an outbreak of tuberculosis. TB is an airborne disease and is spread by the cough, sneeze, or spit of an infected person. It is therefore not surprising the glass that would be licked, thus the name penny licked, cleaned with a dirty rag after the person licked it up, and then reused for somebody else to lick, was infested with germs. Luckily, necessity is the mother of invention. And concerns over hygiene meant when the ice cream cone was first created in New York in 1896, or St. Louis in 1904, depending on whose history you believe, it quickly displaced the glass penny lick. Then came a Londoner named Agnes B. Marshall, and his hand-cranked, ice cream machine. Now, I'm sure some of y'all have done this in the South. I remember doing it as a kid, making your own. In the late 1800s, Marshall started using the new technology of liquid nitrogen. Oh, I used that to get frozen in the cryo chamber to make better quality ice cream. He used the liquid nitrogen. Sam Bumpess, the co-director of the Scoop Ice Cream Exhibition, describes Marshall as the, quote, Victorian equivalent 
of a celebrity chef like Gordon Ramsay or Jamie Oliver or Bobby Flay or something. And he claims that the machines she created, Agnes created, were more effective than today's household ice cream makers, which is pretty incredible. In 1930, Cadbury's began serving soft whipped ice cream with a small chocolate flake known as the 99. By using more efficient manufacturing processes, the treat reached new heights of popularity and quickly became synonymous with summertime, Pebble Beach holidays, and picture-perfect postcards. Ice cream story is a common one. From a good reserved for kings and queens and the nobility to a status symbol amongst the aristocracy to something enjoyed by us all today. This is the type of progress from luxury to everyday good that is common to nearly all modern foodstuffs. It's not just ice cream. It's cake. It's chocolate. It's waffles and syrup. Man, I'm hungry. I'm like, I'm watering at the mouth. Excuse the sound, folks. It's just making me hungry reading all this. Even the idea of keeping leftovers is a relatively recent phenomenon made possible by cheap refrigeration. More often than not, we tend to overlook our truly spectacular rise from grinding poverty that has been the history of most of humanity. Nasty, brutish, and short, to quote some pretentious philosopher. But we often forget it. We focus on the here and now. And because life is full of suffering, we complain and focus on the negative. But so much of what is around us was previously just a couple generations ago, unimaginable. Scientific progress, free markets, and freedom for the individual have made a king out of each of us. And this is the thought I have when I make a king out of each of us, kings and queens. How do we use this power? Do we look at all these advancements, whether it's ice cream or refrigeration in general, or now television or smartphones, the internet, so much that's going on. We seem to only focus on the negative. We seem to seize upon these new discoveries, these new inventions, these new products and services and goods. And the question we always seem to ask is, who's going to control it and have the power? So if technology and all this prosperity has made kings and queens out of us all, how do we use that power? And too often, I think we use it to act like a mad king or queen. To demand what we want because it's what we want, and we want it now. And then when we get the thing that we claimed we wanted, we complain, oh, that's not actually what I wanted. It needs to be better. Ironically, I think this negativity does push us forward. It does help us find a better way, a better way of slicing bread, so to speak. But in general, I think we need to occasionally stop and smell the roses, especially as the political season heats up. Let's just enjoy the heat of summer. And as you're enjoying that ice cream, whether it's in a nice little cone, edible cone, or eating a whole pint by yourself, maybe even a whole gallon by yourself one evening, don't just eat it and get lost in gluttony. While you're lost in your gluttony, think that kings 300 years ago have nothing on me. It's an amazing time we live in. And so I hope 
honestly, and this is what I've started to hope with politics, whether it's Donald Trump or some Democrat wins and beats Trump in 2020, I, I don't think I'd like that. But, like, I just hope whomever has the power in the presidency and the White House and the courts, just don't screw it up too much. I'm sure you're going to make decisions, no matter who you are, that I won't like if I'm really pressed on it. If somebody puts a gun to my head and says, Joey, what do you think of this policy? There's a lot I won't like. But generally, to me, the idea should just normalcy. Don't screw it up too much, dude or madam. Don't screw it up too much. There's too much good that we have, and though it's imperfect and we're denied perfection on this side of the Garden of Eden, there's a lot worthwhile. We don't need to constantly be having a revolution and changing our society. It's part of the left that I don't really like. It's part of the populism that drove Trump into the White House that I'm suspicious of. This angst and resentment. And something my dad said to me a while back is you need to write a paper on the politics of resentment. And he was mostly talking about the left. I think Al Sharpton was actually <laughs> the topic of conversation. What a butte that guy is. White people keep going and kissing the ring of Al Sharpton. I don't understand. It's amazing what you can get away with in this country if you put reverend in front of your name. I guess it's because we want to respect holy men and women and people of God, but it also gives certain uh, con men and hucksters a license to get away with a lot. Just that simple title. But when I thought about the politics of resentment, and I thought about it honestly... It's not just on the left. I mean, there's a lot of that, but it's not just on the left. It's on the right, too. It's where, it, even if you're not left or right, you're just kind of apolitical, and you don't really care about the news and what's going on. There does seem to be, if people are pressed on what they think about politics at the moment, uh, an uneasiness, and a resentment about where we are. And, and part of me thinks that it's unnecessary. We, we're just completely making it out of whole cloth. That, yes, life is full of frustrations and disappointments, and you wish you had this better job, and you wish the power bill was cheaper, and you wish the water wasn't so soft. Whatever your concern is in any given day, and I have a lot of them. But this resentment, especially if it comes from a personal place, like you're not where you want to be in life. Again, I can relate to that, being a young man who's really taking stock of where I am in life, and I'm not content with where I am. Don't confuse your own personal problems or resentments or the entertainment you're offered, and which is branded as news and important information. Don't let it fool you into thinking, because I'm not happy with where I am in life, we got to change the whole frickin' system and flip the table over. I think that mindset, maybe this is the classic conservative in me, is that the order we have, the prosperity we have, the general peace that we have, and opportunity we have, doesn't come to be easily. And once we lose it, it may never come back. So we should be very careful about trying to change anything fundamentally. should be very careful about well, any sort of change. Not because, oh, we don't like certain things or our traditions are being lost necessarily, but because 
you don't necessarily know where you're going. And if you do want to change yourself or the world, do it on a basis of liberty. Do it on the basis of, if you want to come along on this experiment with me, do it voluntarily. We'll go hand in hand. And if you want to break hands and go our separate ways, we can. Instead, and I think this is the, resor- the, the source of our resentment, is that we're not being asked to voluntarily go in new directions. We're being forced to go into new directions. Forced to conform and to share in other people's potential follies. And if you don't, then you're just a bad, evil person. You're immoral. You're bigoted. You're benighted. We got to stop with that crap. And I think the best way to do that is to start limiting the power uh, that we fight over. We need to get back to the original idea that started America. Yes, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but also a suspicion of power and those who want power. It shouldn't be this big show full of gaga glitz and glam and one-liners and emotional appeals and folksy story tales. Power should be kind of a dull process. The pursuit of power should be something that's almost clinical, sanitized. But it's not where we are. I am very aware of where we are. It's a big show. It's a big circus. So I wish you well, everybody who is going to watch the first debate tonight. I don't think it's necessary for you to actually be informed. And given that most people who are listening right now are probably to the right side of the aisle, you most likely won't be voting for any Democrats in any Democratic primary. But if you are going to vote in the Democratic primary... It's still very, very early. We shall see. You know, I heard something Joe Biden said the other day. And given that this is why my mother died, brain cancer, the same type of cancer that killed John McCain, that killed Joe Biden's son, glioblastoma, he made the pledge... I can't really fault him for it, but something about it rubbed me the wrong way, that he would end cancer if he became president. And I think it rubbed me the wrong way because it's exactly what I think the problem is. It's like, yes, people can work themselves up with the best of intentions. If I can't have my mother back, I wish I could do everything within my power To make sure nobody had to suffer what she went through. But then another part of my brain speaks to me and says, yeah, but voting and having a lot of power isn't going to solve that problem. It'll take some ingenious minds to solve that problem. People who aren't looking for political power or glory, but who actually put the facts together. And get a little bit lucky. And maybe the problem isn't solvable at the end of the day. You can't reduce it down to, oh, just give them more government funding. There's just something about the the grandiosity of 
Joe Biden statement, I'm going to end cancer. And they may say, well, that's the American way, isn't it? We literally shoot for the moon, and sometimes we make it there, but we discover new things along the way. So I hope we end cancer. But let's not fool ourselves that because we voted every few years, or Joe Biden ended up president, or Donald Trump was president, that was the major reason it was solved. Now, it always comes back to ideas, to people doing all the hard work, all the thinking, and acting to make the world a better place, whether it's to advance medicine or take the ice cream that we love during the summer from the hands of kings and queens and aristocrats of old and giving it to the everyday person. It is about serving our fellow man, but serving our fellow man while lusting after political power and rooting for our tribe against all the other evildoers, I think missing the mark and missing the point. Well, that's it for me tonight. Hour four is done. But thank you for listening to this last hour of the Joey Clark Radio Hour. I'll be back tomorrow, recapping maybe a little bit some of the Democratic debates from this evening, and there's another one tomorrow night. We shall see. Thank you for listening. Joey Clark.